Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Nick Hirschen. Nick's our first repeat guest. He's an associate professor of communications at William Patterson University, a co-host of the Journalism History Podcast, and is the editor of the most recent issue of the academic journal American Journalism. That's our subject today. The issue looks at the history of investigative reporting, the hook being that it's the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. Hey, Nick. Hey, Mark. Thank you for having me. So just to refresh our audience, give us your journalism origin story and background and maybe connect it to your interest in this particular subject. Sure. Well, I grew up in New York City and I went to St. John's for journalism, went to Columbia Journalism School, and I worked for six years for the New York Daily News as a community reporter in the borough of Queens, where I'm from. That was from about 2005, 2011. And then I decided to become a journalism professor. So I studied at Ohio University to get my PhD in 2016 from the Scripps School of Journalism there. And then I joined the faculty at William Patterson University in Wayne, New Jersey, which is about 20 miles west of the city. And like most journalism students, I grew up watching All the President's Men, the movie that, of course, lionizes uh, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward and the work they did for the Washington Post in tackling Watergate And my parents were of an age where they would talk a lot about where they were when Nixon resigned from office. And that movie became sort of a rallying cry for so many journalists and certainly something inspirational. So whenever you were having a rough day as a reporter, you turn to that film, you see the great work a reporter could do. My God, they could actually take down a president of the United States who's corrupt. How enthralling. So that was part of when we started seeing that we have the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in coming together in 2022, that maybe that would be a good project to do for American journalism. So introduce us to this publication and and what what the point of it is. So American journalism is a peer-reviewed academic journal. It's the official publication of an organization named the American Journalism Historians Association that I've been a part of now for several years. And so it usually has collections of articles written by scholars across the country, journals and professors and graduate students, essays from professors, reviews of books and digital media like movies and such, and go over the history of not only journalism, even though the title is American Journalism, we look more broadly at the history of American and international media. So we'll have things in there sometimes about entertainment media, sitcoms, TV shows, radio shows. We will have things about sports, which is my interest, right? A sports broadcast or sports branding like I did for my dissertation. So those are the sorts of things that you will find there. This is a little bit of a different project because for the first time we are involving not only professors writing for this publication and not only academics, but having the actual platform for investigative reporters themselves to be part of this issue. So this sounds a little bit more uh, exciting, at least to me, in terms of academic journal than a science kind of journal or a mathematic kind of journal. This is one that's specific to, hey, people like like me, people like you. So what does, an, what does editing an issue typically entail? Well, for this one, this is my first time being the guest editor of a special issue. And it's 
a lot of work at the start because you're conceiving how are you going to put this together? First, just have this concept of, okay, we want to do something that is going to mark the anniversary of the Watergate break-in and the impact that that had on investigative journalism. But how are we going to do it? So I didn't want to just have a bunch of professors writing pieces about the meaning of Watergate. I want to try to build a mainstream audience and show the readers of our journal, like you were just saying, we hear academic journal and it has a connotation that it's going to be dull, stilted writing, exclusionary, really only for a certain PhD audience. And in reality, a lot of the work that we're publishing every issue in American journalism is very readable. It's storytelling. It's former journalists who are now doing historical work, quoting their sources, finding out some really fascinating things. And again, sometimes about entertainment and yes, about the history of newspapers and TV broadcasters in the news industry, but also some other fun things. And I thought this would be a good opportunity to kind of run the gamut there. So we start out by identifying that's going to be our purpose. We put out what we call a call for papers. We ask journalism historians from around the country, hey, are you interested in writing a piece for us? Pitch us something and we'll review it and see if it works. So we had that component. But then as part of this project also, as I said, I wanted to change those reviews, which are usually written by professors about maybe an archive that they've gone to or a movie they've watched about journalism history, and instead have those written by investigative reporters and reviewing something that was very important to their growth as a reporter. Maybe this is a book they read in college that inspired them to get into the news business or a series of articles that were in their hometown newspaper, a movie that depicts journalists in a way that they think is accurate or very inaccurate. And they wanted to kind of attack that in the pages of our journal. And of course, you're going to get a different style of writing when you have journalists contributing and not just professors. So these different kinds of points of views are going to be great. And in addition, as I know we're going to be talking about a little bit today, having interviews with famous journalists and other figures who were either related to Watergate or different eras of history that had some sort of an interaction with, they were covered by investigative reporters, or they would have some greater appreciation for that. And uh, and then the last component there is, I want to publicize the work that everybody did to put this together through podcasts like yours, because we often don't do that in the academic community. I know when you probably have had me on in the past, and we talk about the work of the Journals of Mystery podcast, that's the same idea, is that we want to make sure that we're not only appealing to the ivory tower folks, that this is something that Joe Schmo might be interested in the work that we're doing. It's very accessible, as you as you were talking about with regards to accessibility. So there's an overview piece to start, tracing the origin story of investigative reporting dating to the earliest European settlements on the North American coast, and another piece that goes back a good ways on how abolitionists used investigative journalism. So those are your two big history pieces. What can we take from those? Well, the first piece that you mentioned is by James Acoin at the University of South Alabama. He's the one who did this story, an article here about investigative reporters and editors, the key organization that is a leading actor in the establishment of investigative reporting as a practice, as a profession in the United States. And he charts the history all the way back, as you say, to those early European settlements. And Benjamin Harris who founded the first English language newspaper in the colonies in 1690, public occurrences, both foreign and domestic. And in that newspaper, which only had one issue because then it got shut down, he was doing investigative reporting. He said that the King of France had seduced his son's wife. 
<laughs> and this outraged the governor of Massachusetts at the time. So he said, we're going to shutter this newspaper no more and use the excuse that, oh, you didn't have a license to print it. And that's why we're going to do this. So from the earliest founding of investigative journalism, you know, of journalism in the United States, we've had this investigative element. As we'll see, some journalists will argue that all journalism is inherently investigative. You are interviewing people, finding information, bringing it to an audience. So there is that investigative quality. But then in James Acoin's piece, he also talks about partisan editors for early newspapers in the colonies who were the first ones to report, for example, about President Thomas Jefferson's affair with his slave, Sally Hemings. So big pieces in the early history of the United States coming out in investigative journalism. And then you mentioned another piece that we had in there by Jerry Linoska at Indiana University, which is about abolitionists and how they were also practicing investigative journalism. So, you know, when we look at investigative journalism, one of the things that I want to kind of show in this issue is that it did not start with Watergate and Woodward and Bernstein. That's how it is perceived in popular memory and in the journalistic imagination. But in reality, people were doing investigative journalism in the United States for centuries earlier. So, for example, what Jerry found out in his piece was looking at abolitionists as far back as the 1830s that were trying to use pamphlets and newspapers to unearth and lay before the public this documentary proof of slavery and its abuses and quite how evil it was. And he specifically looked at a book in 1839 that came out called American Slavery As It Is, The Testimony of a Thousand Witnesses by a man named Theodore Weld, an abolitionist. And this was using evidence-based investigative journalism techniques more than a century before that phrase, investigative journalism, came into use. So some of the things that he did Weld in this book was looking for eyewitnesses who had seen the horrors of slavery up close, looking through Southern newspapers to see their reporting on this that would not have been making its way up to Northern audiences, for example. You know, we may not think of that today because we're such an interconnected society that I could be sitting in my home in New York and be able to read the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on my laptop, but obviously back then that was not possible. And so he looks through 20,000 newspapers and he includes a report that a former Virginia slaveholder tells him about a man whipping his 15-year-old slave so hard that he dies. And the wife, actually, of this slaveholder using a smoothing iron to burn the slave. And this slave owner ended up being tried and acquitted twice. He had done this twice, but acquitted because the only other witnesses were other enslaved Black people. And so this is ways that we see investigative techniques long predating Woodward and Bernstein. And it sounds like there are some parallels to 2022, no? Uh, certainly in 2022, we're thinking about investigative journalism into the January 6th riot and into former President Trump's business dealings and legal problems. We have calls for investigative journalism from conservative media outlets into Hunter Biden's laptop and different reasons why they think Joe Biden should be impeached. But And that all comes through in this special issue, some of the diversity of perspectives there. But certainly, I mean, we look at what we've seen in recent years with reporting on police brutality that has spurred the Black Lives Matter movement and sexual harassment that sparked Me Too and all of those sorts of 
investigative techniques that even a lot of people like my students sometimes who may say, well, I don't read a newspaper every day. I'm not really looking for news all the time. And yet we know about so many of these things because an investigative reporter somewhere took a lot of time and probably not at the salary they deserve in order to publish this and get it out into the public discourse. So you have a couple of Watergate pieces. If we want to zip forward a little bit from time to something that's a little more modern, one from a prosecutor, one from John Dean. What did you learn from the Watergate pieces? Yeah, so the Watergate pieces are also critical, right? We did not want to ignore that part of American history. That was the impetus for doing this special issue in 2022 of the 50th anniversary. So one piece you mentioned, the prosecutor, that is Jill Weinbanks. She spoke to my the editor of American Journals and my colleague, Pamela Walk, who teaches at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. And in that interview, Weinbanks, who is often on MSNBC as a legal analyst, but talked about how she was an assistant special prosecutor in the obstruction of justice trial of Richard Nixon's top aides. She was the only woman among those three attorneys who was investigating Nixon's attorney general and his chief of staff and his advisor. And she goes into how her journalism degree prepared her for a law degree, for a law career, I should say, reveals how the sexist press scrutiny during Watergate impacted her self-esteem. And she explains why she believes the special prosecutor's decision not to indict Nixon after his resignation was a mistake. And then the interview I did was with John Dean, who was White House counsel to Nixon from 1970, 1973. Your listeners probably know that he appears often on CNN, frequently comments on Donald Trump's legal problems. So you'll see him on TV all the time. Actually, the day that I was interviewing him, he was getting messages on his phone to appear on CNN later in the day. And he was trying to figure out my, when do I have a TV hit? Which show am I going to be on? So it was interesting to see that in progress. But the interview with John Dean, you know, Again, for someone who's a student of journalism like myself and has heard the name John Dean mentioned so many times over the years, has read his work, it's really fascinating to be able to speak to these people and ask them questions you always had, like talking to him about what are his views on Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein? You know, some of the work that they did obviously helped send him to prison because John Dean served time for Watergate. And then also, though, John Dean is kind of held up as a hero of Watergate who turned against Nixon and was able to be the first administration official to really say Nixon did something wrong. He was involved in this cover-up. So asking about his opinion on Woodward and Bernstein, he talks about bumping into them for the first time in a Chinese restaurant years <laughs> after all this happened. And also, which was surprising to me, I was asking John Dean about the film All the President's Men, which we talked about at the beginning of our interview today. In my field, journalism educators hold that up as one of the great classics that we show our students every semester to inspire them. But in John Dean's view, he said it's very distorted and he believes it borders on criminality. He actually mentioned kind of amusingly that he's not even mentioned in the movie at all, which he found interesting, even though he played a critical role. And, uh, but yes, but, you know, that idea that it could be a criminal depiction of Woodward and Bernstein as being these heroes who single-handedly dethroned a president. And the way Dean described it, well, it's good drama, but they distort facts. And really they should be almost held under defamation law, but courts in California won't do that to them. And they should hold them to some sort of a standard that you can't get away with saying based on a true story, you should say this is a fictional account. 
I'm sure that there, that this is a multi-sided story, the nuance of which you wouldn't necessarily condense into 60 seconds of discussion. We'll acknowledge that, but we'll also note that there is an academic piece on the idea of the role of Woodward and Bernstein in as being histor heroic historic journalists, that they played an important role, but that maybe it was a little exaggerated just how important that role was. What, what about that piece? Right. So that piece that you're talking about was written by W. Joseph Campbell, who is a professor at American University, and he has run for many years a media myth blog. He writes about these myths in the media that get perpetuated and repeated so often that they kind of overtake the truth, just become they become the dominant memory of these sorts of events. And so the critical one is that Woodward and Bernstein were these sole actors. Without them, Nixon would still be in office and everything would have turned out okay. And so he's investigated this in many pieces, and we asked him to go into more detail here, that, you know, that that investigative journalism, even though it may have played a role in Nixon's eventual resignation, it really was not as critical as people make it out to be, and how it's become part of this narrative of a heroic journalist that's very misleading and really should be revised in his opinion to emphasize that Watergate ended a corrupt presidency despite, but not because of journalists and their sources. And really saying like in the dust jacket to their book, All the President's Men, they talk about how it precipitated Nixon's resignation. But these sorts of casual offhand references that we've seen so many times over the years to the role that they played really don't look at the kind of larger ecosystem of what it takes to have that kind of an impact on a president. So it's not just the work of the reports of the Washington Post. Obviously, there were reporters at lots of other news organizations that were also covering Watergate, including Connie Chung, who I also interviewed for this special issue. But you know, you look at the court system and politicians who were willing to pick up on what the Washington Post was reporting and say, let's have hearings about that. Let's pressure Nixon based on what we're reading in the newspapers and get into that more. So, you know, Campbell says this is no surprise that this has become the go-to narrative. There's a lot of media-driven myths about heroic journalists because they're simple, easy to understand. A lot of people want to latch onto them because they want to believe that journalism could have this power in society for someone like myself. It is a really great argument to use to young journalists who I'm teaching about why should you go into this profession? What other profession could give you the opportunity to have this sort of historic impact on the future of our country? But it's become this ready shorthand that is inaccurate and he says it's kind of sidestepping the tangle of detail in Watergate. And it's a real shortcut that doesn't look at the total story. Right. And we're not saying anything necessarily about Watergate itself. We're talking about the role of the well-known investigative journalist specific to Watergate and that going up and up and up and up and up to a certain point where they are revered in a certain way that this piece, again, more nuanced than we would be able to articulate in a you know minute discussion. The, the, it's, the piece is worth reading because it gets into the specifics. And I also just want to mention here, Woodward and Bernstein themselves have agreed with this. It's not yep. something that is controversial in the sense that he's trying to take them down. And yep. a lot of people who spoke about Woodward and Bernstein for this special issue 
said that repeatedly of, and John Dean said that too, of like, there was not one story that Woodward and Bernstein wrote in the Washington Post that gave him the slightest palpitation, he said, when it was at the time that the Washington Post really knew what was going on. Now, it's, so it's not to take away from how they have motivated so many journalists over the years and the great work that they continue to do, because they're still great investigative journalists who have been covering presidents up through Trump and Biden. Yep. So, you know, it's just to, to give a quick quote here, because Woodward said at one point to say that the press brought down Nixon, that's horseshit. <laughs> so... <laughs> If, if you even have Woodward himself acknowledging that we were not the key players and, you know, take Graham, the, uh, the publisher of the Washington Post at the time, she said this sort of stuff too. So a lot of people say, you know, are we a part of it? Yes. Are we the sole people? Of course not. So you mentioned Connie Chung before, who was a reporter who covered Watergate, and you did an interview with her. I didn't even realize she's been an active journalist for 50 years, along with her husband, Maury Povich. He's still active. They now, I think he has kind of the lead role in it, but they now run a newspaper themselves. What were the highlights of what you talked about with her? That was a wonderful interview. I have to say, Connie Chung is one of the sweetest people I've ever gotten to interview. And of course, again, surreal to be talking to some of these people who used to come into your home glowing on a television set for so many years. And now you actually get to have this one-on-one Zoom with them. But she's the first person of Asian descent to anchor a major network program in the United States. She's on CBS, NBC, ABC, CNN, MSNBC. She's been all over the dial. And I didn't really realize that at the beginning of her career, she was on the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite reporting on President Nixon and Watergate. You know, she started her career at CBS Evening News in 1971, which is a year before Watergate. So she covered all of that sort of stuff. She was affected, like a lot of journalists, even though some of these journalists are not as associated as Woodward or Bernstein, very much affected by that ethos of doing strong investigative work. And so when I was talking with her, I mean, a lot of really interesting things with Connie Chung, but we talked about investigative reporting that she had done, for example, on CBS in 1990 about silicone breast implants that were causing immunity issues in women and the FDA commissioner seeing that report and saying, I'm going to stop Dow Chemical, the manufacturer who's making them from producing them anymore. Connie Chung also did a report in, in the early 2000s on 2020 on ABC about the Ku Klux Klan. And she did really appealing to me as a historian. She went back and looked at a murder in 1966, where a Ku Klux Klan member had been one of three white men to shoot to death a black man as part of this plot that they were going to shoot somebody, kill a black person in Mississippi, and then that would bring Martin Luther King Jr. to Mississippi because he would be an activist, be concerned about that shooting, and then they would also assassinate Martin Luther King when he arrived. So that Ku Klux Klan member was acquitted back in the 60s, and there is double jeopardy in the United States. You cannot try someone a second time for the same crime, However, what Connie Chung's reporting found out is that this crime took place in a forest on federal parkland. So actually, the federal government could still pursue a separate case against this Ku Klux Klan member 
even though the state had already tried him. And they did, based on all this information that her 2020 team was able to find. And sure enough, they were able to get him arrested, put in prison for the rest of his life. She also talked about an interview she did, probably one of the most famous interviews in broadcast journalism history. In 2001, she did an interview watched by millions of people with Congressman Gary Condit. He was the congressman who was involved with the disappearance of Chandra Levy, the intern in his office, and a lot of speculation about whether they were having an affair. And what I found interesting there, and this is, again, looking at investigative journalism, sometimes it is very deep in the way that Connie Chung was looking at the Ku Klux Klan case and looking through dusty old archives and finding all these old police reports and court records and doing a lot of interviews with people from decades earlier who may have been witnesses to the shooting somehow involved. But sometimes investigative journalism can be very simple too. And so in this interview with Gary Condit, you know, Gary Condit at the time had been saying, I don't really want to talk about the disappearance of Chandra Levy. I, you know, out of respect for her family, I don't really want to get into this. And Connie Chung called him out on it in the interview and said, wait, wait, when Bill Clinton a few years earlier was having his sexual indiscretion problems with Monica Lewinsky, you called on him to publicly air quote, every detail of his affair with Monica Lewinsky. And now you're refusing to talk about your own potential affair. Shouldn't those rules apply to you? And so those simple things that we see journalists do a lot on television, for example, on radio, just saying like, hey, wait a second, Senator, Governor, Mayor, 10 years ago, you said this, and now you're saying something that's the opposite. People voted for you based on the promises that you made and the kind of way you presented yourself. And now you're not following through on that. And so it's small touches like that, that I think still need to be respected as part of the fabric of investigative journalism in the United States. And as I said, if you read the article, you'll learn more about the work that Connie and Maury are doing now. There was a non-traditional piece in here, I thought, anytime you can bring up Dr. Queen Medicine Woman in a <laughs> journalism issue, I think it's pretty interesting. You talked to Jane Seymour, and the reason you did that is because she played an investigative reporter in a made-for-TV movie called The Absolute Truth. She also did some reporting on the British royal family. All right, so what, what was that about? Yeah, this one was really fun, too, because I wanted to not only interview journalists who had been investigative reporters, but we were just talking about how All the President's Men is the movie, because there was also the book All the President's Men, but the movie All the President's Men kind of became the depiction of investigative journalists that is in the public consciousness. And so we cannot dismiss the importance of investigating those kinds of portrayals on film, on television, of journalists. So when I was looking through this book called Encyclopedia of Journalists on Film, I learned about a television movie in 1997 called The Absolute Truth, which starred Jane Seymour. And at that point, she was already famous. She was in Live and Let Die in 1973, the James Bond movie. She was in, as you mentioned, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, which is how I knew her growing up. But she was executive producer of this film, not only the star, but executive producer. And she really believed in what this film was about. And it's available on YouTube if any of your listeners would like to check it out. But it's a movie about a television newswoman that Jane Seymour plays who is covering a presidential candidate who sexually harasses his staff. And it has a lot of similarities with the Bill Clinton scandal, 
or the Gary Hart scandal that was happening, you know, in the years before this movie came out. It also has William Devane in it, Bruce Greenwood, Linda Pearls. There's a lot of actors who your listeners might recognize. But this movie, you know, is really interesting because it has a very negative look at how journalists do their business and how they're backstabbing and they lie, just like the politicians that they're covering who are masterful at spin and end up, you know, kind of working with journalists to deceive the public almost. So I was very interested in talking to her about that. And as you said, when I was doing research about her career, I was surprised to find out she had covered these royal weddings for Good Morning America and Entertainment Tonight. And at times while covering these royal weddings, she got into some trouble because she was able to get access to members of the royal family that the traditional press corps could not get. And those folks got angry at her. People like Brian Gumbel and Barbara Walters got upset at her for her access. So there was a lot of that. But, you know, the other kind of fun thing was Jane Seymour could talk about it on both sides of it. She was a public figure being covered by reporters throughout her career still to this day. So I was talking to her about like, well, have there ever been rumors reported about you that were wrong, investigative reporting about you that was incorrect? And she was laughing about all the time. And she told me a few stories, one, you know, a few here that really stick out from Dr. Quinn. But she said there was this story about how she was so averse to mud that <laughs> even though they were filming in a state park for Dr. Quinn, she would like roll out a red carpet to get from her trailer to the set. She would never, ever want to touch mud. And she said, that's ridiculous, Nick. If you watch the pilot episode of Dr. Quinn, I fall face down in the mud. <laughs> that is like right there. It's recorded for everybody to see. And then there was also a rumor that was out there in the British press that she would only wash her hair with imported English rainwater, that she would get this delivered on a 747 jet at great expense, and she would not take a shower. You know, she's a diva who will not take a shower unless she has this expensive rainwater. And she said, like, you know, you look at this stuff and, you know, maybe a discerning audience would say, oh, that's not true. But of course, it hurts people's reputations. And I think in her case, what clearly came through in our interview is she has a deep distrust of the media now. And she really thinks, based on some of what she saw when she was at Good Morning America, and she saw the way they were trying to frame stories, because she was also, you know, to do some research for this movie role in The Absolute Truth, she spent time behind the scenes at some TV networks and was getting a sense of how do they decide what goes on the air. And she was saying it was terrible. She told me the story about how they were doing a story about couch potatoes and they were all in the newsroom and they're trying to say, oh my gosh, we need a couch potato to interview for this story. We need to get a couch potato on TV. And she said she could just imagine a reporter calling a friend at home saying like, <laughs> hey, Mark, would you like to be on television? If I, I'll come over, we'll get a crew over from CBS, ABC, we'll, we'll film you. And of course, we won't tell you that it's because then we're going to show you on television is this lazy oaf who doesn't get off the couch. <laughs> and, you know, so she was talking about how she really had this very negative view of it. And if you watch The Absolute Truth, I think you'll see it. The other kind of neat thing there about The Absolute Truth is, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that it was originally supposed to air right before Election Day in 1996. It ended up getting pushed back, she thinks, for political reasons, because people may have been pressuring CBS, like, don't air it right now. You want to make sure that 
you wait until after the election. And so what ended up happening is it aired the next year at the exact same time slot as the episode of Ellen, where Ellen DeGeneres' character came out as gay. And that was one of the most watched episodes of all time. So everybody was watching Ellen and not looking at the absolute truth. So it's one of those things that I encourage our audience to check out. But, you know, especially anyone who's a journalism student, a journalism professor, watch this with their class, debate some of these ideas. This is what I was trying to do as part of this special issue is enter new pieces of media into the conversation. We all know about all the president's men and spotlight and some of those critical movies about that are really well done movies about investigative journalism, but you know what, there should be some room for the absolute truth as well. I, I like that you brought, you introduced a movie that is not going to be familiar to most people. So give us a state of the union here. You did a, you, you wrote something within the journal about finding a common theme in most of the interviews, but the, and that budgets are, are killing investigative reporting teams. What's the state of the union of investigative journalism? Well, I think that's really critical to examine here too, is that right now there is a kind of a sense that a lot of the people who I was interviewing were voicing that investigative journalism has died. It's something of the past. There were the shoe leather reporters of a Woodward and Bernstein era, but there's just not the money to support that kind of in-depth journalism anymore in an age of the shrinking budget and the staff getting laid off. And that just really isn't true. I think there is some concern that good investigative journalism is still being done and was done a lot in the lead up to the 2016 presidential election, for example, and 2020, and people just didn't pay as much attention as they might have paid in previous generations for lots of reasons, because we have a fragmented media landscape when there are so many different things for us to watch on television, for example, and we've got every streaming service, there's movies, there's video games, there's the internet, and there's so many things demanding our attention. It can be difficult to focus the way the nation might have at some points during Watergate or scandals when I was growing up in the 1990s involving Bill Clinton, for example. It was something that everybody was talking about the water cooler. That kind of culture does not quite exist anymore. However, investigative journalism is still flourishing. You mentioned before Connie Chung and her husband, Maury Povich, and they run a newspaper in Montana named the Flathead Beacon that Maury created to commemorate the life of his father, who was a famous Washington Post sports writer, Shirley Povich. And they, at the Flathead Beacon, are encouraging their reporters to do this sort of investigative work. One of the things that Connie Chung was mentioning to me was they had just had a piece around the time that I was interviewing her about the local library and people getting upset about certain books that had been banned or, you know, they didn't, or they wanted them to be banned. And that someone had actually dropped some of these books through the slot with bullet holes in them, actually shot through the books and returned them that way. And so this sort of investigative work of, you know, who's behind that? What kind of chilling effect does it have on librarians and others? This is something that we need to explore a little bit more deeply. And also, I just want to mention in researching the note that I wrote at the beginning of the special issue that you're referencing here. I was looking at a book, came out in 2018 by Beth Noble, professor, a book named The Watchdog Still Barks, watchdog referring to like investigative journalists, and saying that newspapers actually had more investigative stories on their front page over time, not fewer. We're actually seeing more of it. 
because a lot of newspaper editors say, this is a key selling point for us. We cannot compete with some of the things that are on national news. We're never going to have that kind of glamour. But one of the things that we've got that TV news and radio just doesn't tend to do quite as often is investigative reporting in our communities. And that's something that I hope is continuing. I hope that all your listeners will support it. We have a whole series of reviews written in this special issue by investigative reporters at some terrific news organizations, Axios, the Houston Chronicle, Capital B, you go down the list of Pulitzer Prize winning reporters, Tampa Bay Times, San Diego Union Tribune, the Journal News in New York, who are all doing some really terrific work every single day. And take the time to pick up your local newspaper and appreciate some of this or go online and you know, read some of this stuff because it's still happening. It affects your life. It affects the decisions that you make on how to vote, how to live, the water you drink, the parks you play in, everything that is critical to the way that our everyday lives are run. So I think that the moral of all of this, right, the bottom line is investigative journalism did not necessarily peak back when Woodward and Bernstein did their work. They were part of this legacy that we saw happened way back in 1690 with public occurrences, foreign and domestic, the first newspaper in the colonies, going all the way up to what we're seeing today in investigative reporting on Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Do you find that your students are interested in, in the topic? I think that students I found at my university are, and a lot of schools, I think, are really driven more into reporting on sports and music. Those are two topics I hear about a lot. And I try to encourage them to think about those also from a standpoint of investigative journalism, right? Because if we look at things like, you know, okay, you want to be an entertainment journalist, it's not all fluff. There's the Harvey Weinstein scandal. There's Me Too. There's Black Lives Matter coming into the sports world. It's painted on the court in NBA games. It's being talked about in the NFL with Colin Kaepernick. I mean, this is something that we want to investigate more deeply. And I think that what I do see a thread with a lot of students is an idea of advocacy journalism and maybe even going back to what Jerry Linoska was writing about with the 1830s abolitionists. You know, we have this idea right now that journalism should be dispassionate and just a kind of neutral observation of what's happening around us. But it's being attacked by a lot of really strong journalism minds who are saying, we can never be completely unbiased. Our experiences, who we were when we were born, our race, our religion, our gender, these things are going to affect us. And they're not say that we're going to have some sort of a hateful bias, but they are going to influence our reporting. And that's okay if you're transparent about it and you make sure you acknowledge that and understand how it's influencing you. So I think with a lot of journalists, a lot of journalism students, especially, there is still that passion for, I see something wrong. There is some issue, whether it's, we know young people are interested in environmental topics. We know that there's a lot of political activism, especially after the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court. You know, there's a lot of interest in covering these kinds of things. And through investigative work, as long as you're not now only showing one side of it because you really want to prove a point, so you're only going to look at the evidence that helps you prove that point. But I think in a lot of cases, 
that is the first step towards, I think something is going on like those abolitionists were saying in the 1830s. They're getting away with things in the South that are horrifying. And if our audience in the North really deeply understood that people are being whipped to death and burned and how horrible this is, then maybe they would push a little bit harder for an end to this practice. And so I think we're seeing the same thing today with students being interested in those kinds of issues on their campus, in their neighborhood, nationally, and wanting to give voice to it. And that's really important too, because you know every segment of the population, younger people, they have a certain view that maybe you and I won't have because we're not in those shoes. We don't know what those issues are. So I do see that. I love the work that the Flathead Beacon is doing in Montana under Connie Chung and Maury Povich's leadership because they are having interns come in from Montana newspapers and also, I believe, from newspapers out east. And they're getting young people engaged in this, supporting them financially and giving them a lot of encouragement morally. And that's, I think, what we can all do as a collective is when we see good journalism, share it email it around, post it on social media, make sure it gets read and respected. Speaking of which, how can people find the publication of American Journalism? So there's a few different ways they can do it. We have a website that is american-journalism.org. You'll see all of our stories, all of our issues, essays are up there. If you actually want to read some of these components that we've been talking about, you can also find that on the website of our publisher, which is Taylor and Francis is the academic publisher that puts out the academic journal, American journalism. So on the Taylor and Francis website, you'll see now some of the traditional features of an academic journal. Another thing that's frustrating sometimes to contributors is that it's behind a paywall and a pretty expensive paywall if you want to get access to everything, but you can buy individual articles, but also what we're doing for this special issue is making certain pieces paywall free. So that anybody who goes to the website, you don't have to click on anything and give your credit card. You can just get in there and read this great stuff we're talking about. So we have the essay by W. Joseph Campbell that we were talking about before, about the heroic journalistic narrative of Woodward and Bernstein and all the president's men. That's going to be paywall free. You can go read it. I did an interview with Steve Scully, former host on C-SPAN for decades, who talked about being inspired by the work of Woodward and Bernstein during Watergate when he was delivering newspapers as a kid and growing up with that. And then he got the chance to interview these folks over the years who were involved in Watergate. So that interview, we're also going to be making paywall free. You mentioned before the one that my colleague Pam Walk did with Jill Weinbanks, the prosecutor during Watergate, that's up there. And Alex Stuckey, an investigative reporter for the Houston Chronicle, who won a Pulitzer in 2017, she did a review of something that her professor had written when they were working for a Memphis newspaper about the infant mortality rates in Memphis. And what did that mean? We're also going to make that one paywall free. So throughout the month of November and into December, we're going to be seeing different pieces of this issue are going to be going up on the website. It is going to hit the mailboxes of our subscribers in December. But I definitely encourage all of your listeners Check us out. I'm also going to be putting stuff out on my own Twitter feed. I have video of the Zoom interviews I did with Steve Scully and Connie Chung and Jane Seymour and all these folks. And I'm going to be tweeting all that out from my account at Nick Hershon. So everybody can you know, see that 
and really get a sense of how emotional these folks get. Some of that comes through when you're reading a transcript, but some of it only can be captured when you watch the video. Nice. So the last question is the same one that we always ask at the end of interviews, but we'll slightly theme it and say, is there someone that you would like to salute for their good work in investigative reporting, maybe someone that we haven't mentioned yet? I would just say all of these folks who contributed to our special issue are worthy of people reading, especially some of these authors of the reviews that we did not have a chance to talk about yet. So we had a review in here from Leonora Lapeter Anton from the Tampa Bay Times. She won a Pulitzer Prize in 2016, a piece by Isaac Avalucia, who works for Axios, friend of mine. Jeff McDonald from the San Diego Union Tribune, Caroline Michelle Aguirre, who works for a French news magazine named Lobs. We actually have not featured a lot of work from international journalists before, and that's something that I want to make sure we included here too. A reporter for Capital B, Adam Mahoney. Capital B is a news organization focused on Black news. He's their climate reporter. Christina Sturbenz, who works for Vice News. I mentioned Alex Stuckey from the Houston Chronicle and my former colleague at the New York Daily News, Tom Zambito, who now works for the USA Today Network. So I'd say start with all the work that they are doing, because if you look them up on Twitter, if you see every day they're putting out some really terrific pieces, and of course we have limited time in our schedule, so we don't get to read all of it, but these are people who are fighting that good fight at a time when it's very difficult to be a journalist, there's a lot of hostility towards journalism. There's, uh, you know, a lot of long hours that journalists have to work for not such great pay sometimes. And they are willing to do all of this. And they were contributing to our special issue to highlight all that. So reward them with your views, your clicks. You know, they really are doing some excellent stuff. Nick, thank you for Nick Hershen, American journalism editor. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. To learn more about Nick, check out the interview that I did with him and Terry Finneman, episode 12 in 2020. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.